You're listening to the Irish Times Book Club podcast in association with the Irish Writers' Centre. This podcast is recorded in front of a live audience at the Irish Writers' Centre on Parnell Square on the third Thursday of every month, where we speak to some of the country's best authors about their latest work. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Books podcast with Mia Gallagher. I'm Laura Slattery and I'm delighted that the Irish Times Book Club title this month is Mia's moving and multifaceted novel, Beautiful Pictures of the Lost Homeland. What can be said about this hard-to-pin-down book? Claire Kilroy described it as a book about how we process trauma. Rosemary Jenkinson described it as less of an airport novel, more of a rocket launch pad novel. And Mike McCormick wrote that this was an Irish novel whose reputation will grow in years to come. Published by New Island Books, the spellbinding beautiful pictures of the lost homeland is Mia's second novel, and it comes a decade after her acclaimed debut, Hellfire. She was born and lives in Dublin, where she also writes prize-winning short fiction and works as an actor. Please welcome Mia Gallagher. Thanks, Mia. Uh, This is a a multi-stranded novel, as I said in my introduction there. But was there an original kind of single kernel of inspiration for this book? And if so, can you kind of tell us how that came about? Yeah, there was, but it's not in the book anymore. So um, it started off as a as a very different story. I was going to I was still going to write about Germany, but it was um, it was going to be the story of an Irish girl going to au pair in Germany in the 1980s. And from that initial idea, which had been a short story, I started um, Georgie was going to be the character. And I started exploring, found myself exploring her childhood, this girl's childhood. And then Georgie and Ashling and David and Lotte started emerging there. So um, after about four years, I realised that the au pair story didn't really belong. So I, I just brought my, kept bringing my attention back to Georgie. And in the meantime, I'd found um, her adult voice, which was quite different to her child voice. And I'd found certain things in her relationship with Martin and um, and then and then it sort of expanded into the Sudetenland, into the Sudetendeutsche history and the Wunderkammer. Okay, because I have questions about all of those things. But first of all, just to give a kind of a partial synopsis, um, you know, in the present day, we, we meet the adult Georgie, Georgie Madden, and she's a trans woman recording a letter to her kind of estranged father. Uh, and she's also recounting, as you say, the relationship with her, her ex, Martin. And she's undergoing a health scare, which is, 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 is very pertinent to what her past. And then we have 1970s Ireland, uh, where we see the child. And, you know, she's born a son to her parents, David and Ashling. But we also meet the Lottie and uh, an, an, an older woman, Anna Bauer, who is uh, talking about her traumatic war experiences uh, to a documentary maker. Um, so, and that's how the Sudetenland comes into it. So, uh, I mean, just, I got the sense that just from what you've said before that you kind of resisted writing about Ireland in the 1970s, but what, what, what eventually kind of drew you to that? Well, actually that was, I didn't so much resist that. I mean, I found I, I, I was drawn into writing about that time period. I guess I made Georgie more or less my age. So I, I thought, well, I know Dublin in the 70s. Or I certainly know it from a child's point of view. Um, so I, I just, I guess I was, I was interested in that very suburban sort of, um, it, was, it was an interesting time to be a child in Ireland. It was an interesting time to be a child in Dublin because Dublin 
um, felt different. Like both my parents were born outside Dublin and they came to Dublin and to them Dublin, I won't say a Mecca, I mean that would be exaggerating a little bit, but it, but Dublin had a cosmopolitan uh, feeling to it. Like my mum, she was, um, she had studied in London so when she came back to Ireland, she came back to Dublin and you know there was a sense of her still wanting the city life and my father um, is half German so again like Dublin seemed to I suppose speak to that more cosmopolitan side of him maybe then if he'd stayed in Waterford. So I think I was drawn almost despite myself into this world. But then I realised as I was writing it that while I knew about what Dublin was like for a child, I, I had no idea what it was like for an adult. You know, what... I mean, I had a sense of what went on in the politics, but very, very vaguely. So what was it like for somebody in their 30s? What was it like for David, who's 40? What was it like for Lotta, who's in her 20s? You know, I have a, I'm like, my child, Dublin for me was kind of weirdly magical, even though it was very grey and a little bit poor. But it felt like, you know, with a bit of imagination, it could be anywhere. And, but then what was the reality like for someone who was an adult in that time? So that was kind of interesting because I had to really, I guess I had to do research uh, I had to research both factually by finding out about this world. Um, for David's chapters, I talked to men who'd been engineers in the 1970s, who'd worked for Arup, who's this huge firm. And so trying to get a sense of what those offices were like. And I was also thinking of my dad's office. He, he worked in the civil service for the forestry department. So I had a sense of like that green computer paper with the perforations down the edges, which you're probably too young to remember. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, I am a sort of a child of the 70s, but yeah, I don't, I don't remember the 70s. And But I I'd sort of, you know, it's funny, I saw, you know, the echoes, I think, of what you wrote about were still there, I think, in the 80s, perhaps. Um, and this is sort of, it's it's just the creative possibilities of this time. I mean, I just even re- reading this, I realised that I must, I must pursue more fiction in this area because there's this dash of ambition, a dash of glamour and a sense of possibility, but really we're talking about a very conservative society and uh, there's a lot of tension there between those two things. Yeah, between the old and the new. And that was something that, I mean, I've never really been that interested in, say, writing about religiosity or the church kind of, well, certainly not on the nose. But what I found for me that the most interesting thing that was emerging for me about the 70s particularly writing about David because he is an Irish man, was this tension almost between a secular worldview and a more religious worldview. There was like, like modernism, you know, was starting to happen really through architecture. And I, you know, I would never have been particularly drawn to the central bank as as a structure or to, you know, like Bosaurus or, 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 um, uh, Liberty Hall, but in starting to understand like what what this architecture meant at that time, you know, in a city which was which had been quite hidebound, you know, there was sort of Georgiana on one side, and then there was, um, I guess, it was very simplistic to call it De Valera's Ireland, but there was a, a sort of um, a post-independence Ireland, and then there was this secular, forward seeking kind of um looking to Europe, Europe uh, yeah. yeah and that very much appealed to me you know that that and it also uh, the more I wrote the book I certainly didn't set out to write a comment about Ireland's relationship with Europe but it seemed to be more and more kind of I seemed to be discovering that and exploring it the more I wrote the book 
So, I mean, the, the other thing, of course, about the 70s is it's halfway between the 40s and, I suppose, the start of this century. So it, it fits with the, the character development. But just to, to stick with David uh, 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 for the moment, I mean, his, his marriage with Ashling, I mean, it's, it's complicated. And his, his yeah. relationship later with Lotte is also complicated. You know, and as is George's with Martin, and there's a lot of kind of a, a kind of abundant pain in all of this, and, and, and <laughs> a sense of loss as well. Yeah. And when, when you originally started writing about the Irish au pair in, in mm. Germany, and obviously you've kind of reversed it here, you know, did you have a feeling that this kind of that loss and pain would 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 be a theme throughout this book? No, no. I mean, because I don't really write about themes. I, I, I'm a, what I love about having a book out and published, or even where it's like going to editors, is that other people tell me what the themes are. If, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And then I go, oh, yeah, no, that, that, yeah, absolutely. That is what I was writing about. I, I mean, I'm drawn to pain, uh, not in real life. I mean, I hate it like most people, but I, I find that certainly um, it interests me to, to write about it um, because it, like, the painful experiences I've had, um, I mean, that's where I've grown and that's where I've learned from which sounds like the most terrible self-help cliche in the world. But there's something about a character in pain that is very interesting to me. I'm always interested in the source of, of this pain. Where has it come from? But I'm also interested in how does a character act when they are in pain? That's an animal thing. Like, wh- what's their behavior like? And what do they do? And usually, what damage do they cause to themselves and to other people? And for me, I guess fiction is it needs conflict and it needs it needs a kind of scrape against something in order to be interesting for me to be engaged in writing it so yeah I guess something something terrible was always going to happen to all the characters at some stage in in the book maybe not all at once but I was going to put them into difficult situations I mean I suppose there's a danger of drawing too many parallels but there is a I think a beautiful parallel between Anna uh, not wanting to talk about all the, th- the things that happened to her in, after, in, in the Sudetenland after the Second World War. Uh, and I suppose, you know, Georgia and David, you know, not, not being maybe able to find the, the right words or even not wanting to, to talk about their feelings or, and what's happening to them. Yeah, and actually that's really, I think that did come out as something like Oshin Fagan talks about that in his piece on on the website and I think he really nailed it. I mean I'm fascinated because partly because I have acted as well. I'm fascinated in what people say by not saying anything and I'm fascinated in what when people want to say something and they can't and art the inarticulate really intrigues me. So um like to to play with that with a novel it's fantastic because you can go into somebody's mind they may say like David says very very little that's interesting to anybody during the whole book and yet I found his mind quite interesting an interesting place a difficult place to be in um and I guess with I mean certainly with when when I was no pair in Germany in the 80s, the thing that struck me was how difficult people found to talk about the war. They could talk about the occupation by French, American and English forces. And they could talk about the Cold War and what was happening at the wall. And they could talk about, there would be an almost like um, a knee-jerk reaction of, um, 
of, of, of guilt and, and responsibility for what happened. But they never talked about their own experiences during the war. And this was something my grandmother was, was German, but she lived in Ireland um, from the 30s. And she, I remember talking to her when I was in my teens about what was it like, you know, what was it like in Germany in the 30s? And she was going, well, it was terrible. You know, as a woman, you couldn't smoke in restaurants. And, but we thought he was a buffoon, you know, which is horribly uh, resonant now mm. with... Um, he who shall not be named. But um, also, I think as well, there's, there was this, this sense of, um, they call it schweigen in German, which means to, to be quiet. Like, how can you talk about something that's, that's like less than a generation old? So in the 70s, um, like somebody who was 50 would have had an immediate experience of the war, of, of the Nazi brand fascism. And what... How could they talk about that? It was almost like, so that really interested me. Um, how do you talk about something that's unspeakable, really, I guess? Okay, well, we'll talk some more about the, the, the various strands and themes in the book. But first, I would love if you could read a passage from it for us, please. Thanks. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from, from the middle of the book. So... Um, it's from David's point of view, and this is the summer, so it's uh, he's it's now October 1976, but he's thinking back over the summer, and Ashling is his wife, so he's he's talking about kind of her last months. Um, the only other characters that are mentioned, I think, there's a load of characters mentioned in the middle, but you know, not in an important way. So the summer was basically terrible, but he's thinking about the good things. There had been good things. Oh, you must meet her, Davy. Ashling kept saying. Lottie's so interesting, isn't she, Georgie? But David hadn't wanted to. This girl, this cleaning lady, was none of his business. And when they did meet, sometime late in June, he'd been too much on edge to take her in. All he had registered was a slim girl, little more than a teenager with dark shadows under her eyes and a posh English accent. Someone far less capable, less maternal, was that the word, than Ashling had implied. But in one way, Ash had been absolutely right. Georgie really liked her. Then there was this, too. Strange, precious moments of intimacy, hand-holding, jokes, a brush of her fingers across his face, or other days she'd be angry or folded into herself or only wanting Georgie or something scientific to read and sometimes he found that a relief. As if, in rejecting him, she had taken some of the burden of recrimination from his own shoulders. As the summer deepened, burning the grass in their back garden brown and the crab clawed up her body into her brain, she started to forget things began asking for Jan. One morning, Jan vanished, and the only person she wanted near her was Lotte. In August, she grew demanding, told him to sit with her and sponge her mouth and tell her things. Oh, no dark secrets, she would say, that old glint back in her eye to show him that she didn't think he had anything dark to share. Do your voices again, Davy. Do Jan. Do Rourke. Oh no, do Joni. Do Bridget. Do Art. Do Lotte. 
Oh, yes. Do latte. Hard not to read into the omission. Hard not to offer. Just to test. Where's Dennis? She asked once just before dawn, sitting straight up in bed, eyes bright with a terrible, wet light. Who? he said. She looked through him and he realised she wasn't awake. His beloved jazz helped, but only sometimes. His sci-fi books didn't. It had been months since he'd finished one. Work did a little, but not much. Writing the paper for Munich did. And didn't. By then he'd decided he was going to back out, let Morgan down and Klaus Fuchs, but he, he still needed something to do. He would feel the danger signs start, his mind racing, looking for things under its own surface, and he would grab something, anything, fool's cap, or a page of calculations, drawings, computer printouts sent over from London, a notebook even. These, at least he understood, these were real. Things he had lived through made happen. It didn't matter that his analysis hadn't always been successful. What mattered was that it was real. It was there. He didn't need the old excuses to work on his paper, like the directorship or the fact that Ashling had been at him for years, pushing him to make a mark, to provide better for Georgie and herself. Some days, it was enough to just face the problem, the ill-conditioned analysis, and ask, what is this? And if he was lucky... An inch of space might scrape free in his mind. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's, I mean, that's this is a beautiful um, third person from uh, David's point of view. But but we, later we have the, the adult Georgia and she's addressing David, uh, sort of the father who doesn't know how to be a father as such. But and that's also kind of a feature of your first novel, Hellfire, as well, where you have somebody... Uh, addressing another yeah, character, yeah, yeah, and is yeah. that something that, that's obviously something you are drawn to? And do you know do you know why you're drawn to that? What's the possibilities that you like from that? Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about this today actually. Um, I think um, par- it's partly from like my first novel came out of a monologue, so I was performing it to an audience, and I think um, yeah, it's sort of why did I not ever sure why it became addressed to the second person, but it seemed like the right thing to do and similarly with Georgia like originally Georgia's um, account had been just a straight first person past tense but then I started thinking I suppose I started thinking about how the different strands in the books um, connected and how they could connect more and they could kind of almost be like these um, lines resonating off each other and I knew that the Wunderkammer connected very much to Anna's testimony. And then I, I, was, I was thinking about this and I thought, oh, yes, like, why is Georgia going through this? Why is this account unfolding? Can she be telling it to somebody? And then it just seemed that it was obvious, I guess, that she'd tell it to David. And then that just seemed to make sense. And it also, to me, it set up like uh, the structure of a book in a more meaningful way. It was, I, I felt that the whole structure was about the different strands trying to connect with each other and failing. So it's almost like the failure of a grand co- coherent whole was what the book was about. It was almost about like things missing each other, passing each other. You get a whisper and that happens as well. Like 
where Georgie gets a Georgia now, um, the adult Georgia gets a whisper of something that should connect her into some of the other stories and it doesn't it just it, it passes her by but hopefully the reader will feel the connection so I mean there is a kind of a collage of kind of literary forms in, in, in the novel and, and and I think it's it's really a kind of effective device to show that the past is kind of always with us uh, even if we kind of there are near misses and we don't quite understand it but you've mentioned it a couple of times now so maybe you could tell us what is the the, the wonder camera the wonder camera and, and why did you weave that idea oh yeah the so the wonder camera uh, I'm going to be really coy here and the wonder camera uh, is whatever you want it to be. So I have an idea what it is and and how it totally links into everything else. But I'm quite happy to leave that. Um, there are hints there in the text that would that would some readers would pick up and some readers won't. And I'm quite happy for it to be kind of open. But it is, I mean, in a nutshell, it's an imagined history of Bohemia told through a series of log notes which describe artefacts that kind of summarise aspects of Bohemian history. Bohemia being the original name for, well, one of the original names for the territory that later became known as the Sudetenland. So this is the Sudetenland where, you know, there was uh, the expulsion of the the German Czechs uh, after the Second World War. Well, actually, they were German speakers because there was two. And it was it's a very complex history. And that's what drew me to it. So it was a contested territory from fairly early on in that there was Czech speakers who would identify as Czech Bohemians and then German speakers who would identify as German Bohemians. But that kind of idea of national identity, they really identified more with the actual town that they came from. So if you were from Pils, you would see yourself as a German Pilsner or a Czech Pilsner. So there was, um, their identity wasn't so much like um, allied to this idea of a nation state of the Czech Republic or Czechia or the nation state of Germany. It was a local identity and an identity based around language. So that sounds really abstract, but... But that's yeah. that's how it yeah. was. I mean, yeah. it, it's a very partic- particular case. But Anna, Anna, I mean, so she ends up in 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 the UK. Yeah, and um, so that's sort of part of of, the, of Lottie's ethnicity, and without you know talking about the links too much. But she has this kind of almost an inherited sense of displacement. Yes, and she Be- later moves to Dublin, of course. But it's it's very complicated her own background. Yes, because the German speakers um, were. Um, uh, deported or evacuated or displaced or moved, forced to migrate from um, those from the Sudetenland, which was a particular region in what we now know as the Czech Republic. So all the German speakers were forced to migrate in 1946 to 1948. And the accounts vary, but I think, I mean, there was about two million living there at the end of the war. And by, I think, ni- 1950, there was maybe 250,000 or something. So it was a, it was a huge displacement. Um, and depending on who you talk to, some people would describe that as ethnic cleansing. But because of the guilt of being part, somehow complicit in the Nazi regime, it's like even using the word ethnic cleansing, it's, it's quite problematic. But yes, so Anna's, Anna was one of those people that was displaced in that time. 
So, I mean, as I mentioned at the start, it's sort of uh, the book, you know, it, 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 it's sort of difficult to pin down and you maybe don't necessarily want to necessarily pin it down. You'd like like it to be kind of open and open to many different interpretations. But I suppose my question is, are there any interpretations that you've read uh, that other people have had that have surprised you, the interpretations that they've had? Um, gosh, I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I think I've been delightfully surprised uh, in that sense of, oh, yes, that's what, like, Claire's uh, analysis of it being around trauma, I thought it was just spot on. I couldn't have, I couldn't have come up with that myself, actually. It was just, and it seemed really right. Um, and everybody who's written about it has has brought in something. Um, Sarah Keating, who is writing in the um, Sunday Business Post, she was talking about this idea of um, all this, all these stories and all this, kind of mix of experience was to to bring the reader into the sensation of the present moment of an individual and actually that was something that I was really interested particularly in the long um, chapters in the 1970s which are told from the third person I wanted to slow time down they're very they're, they're very long chapters but they only take place over maybe a day or two days um, and I wanted to slow time down so that you felt you were really experiencing moment to moment what these people were experiencing. So it was, I wanted, I guess, that sense of intense subjectivity that that the novel is so good at doing. A novel, the novel is a form. Um, I think it was Sarah, Sarah Baum who said uh, one of the possible interpretations was a twin story, which I thought it hadn't occurred to me but to think of it that way. But there is obviously, there, there, are, there are twins in, in it. And there's, but there's also a sense of, as I said, a sense of loss and th- th- people being missing that, that kind of fits yeah. in with that theme too. Yeah, because I was even looking at the jacket and like the jacket, there's a boy and a girl and that could be Georgie and Georgia, but it, are Georgie's different selves, but it equally could be Lotta and her twin brother. Yeah, I mean, twins, I'm, I'm completely obsessed with twins. And I so. suppose the broader duality of, of, yes. of being. being. Mm. I mean, just to go, just talk more about, about Georgia, who used to be Georgie, as it says. Um, I mean, as far as, as far as David and Ashling are concerned, they, uh, they have a son, but, 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 she, but she is a she to, to Georgia all along. So tell us about what went into that decision and, and why that you felt that was important for the yeah, character. Well, she started off as a girl. So then I was like, yeah, I always felt she was a girl. And then when I had this idea of like, oh my God, what if she's trans? And I looked back all my handwritten notes and there were so many places where other people thought she was a boy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, okay, yes, I think I can make this work. So then it was very easy actually making the decision that she was trans. So I I had seen, I think, um, Trans America around that time. And I really liked the choice to cast a female actor as a trans woman, that it wasn't, um, I mean, now you could probably have a trans uh, trans female actor, but it was, the, it was like, it's, that seemed to be a really strong ideological choice. It was like saying, no, we're honoring this person's subjectivity, their sense of who they, who they feel they are, who they know they are. So the other thing was I did a lot of interviews with um, people from the trans community and one trans woman, um, and I, f- I just found her very moving and she said, yeah, no, I always knew I was a little girl. I was just a different little girl. And I thought, yeah, okay. So she didn't, she didn't feel she was like, a girl stuck in a boy's body and she didn't feel she was like a boy who wanted to be a girl and she didn't feel she was a boy who thought she was a girl she was a girl and I just thought yeah yeah that feels um that feels really honest 
and um, and also kind of radical as well. But she doesn't have an easy time of it for all kinds of reasons. But but I suppose a kind of a manifestation of that is the character of Elaine. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about Elaine and, and, and why you put her in the story? Yeah, no, Elaine was always there right from the very um, first drafts um, when Georgie was completely different. Elaine was always her best friend and her a friend that she had a bit of a problematic relationship with, but she was a best friend and she always looked the way she does in the novel. So she looked she looks quite different to Georgie, like Georgie's sturdy and red-headed and freckled and Elaine is very slender and kind of fragile and more sallow-skinned. So that, that I always had that image of Elaine. And then as, um, as I developed the story more, I began to wonder who she was. And, uh, and I had ideas about her, which I, original ideas I kind of left to one side and I allowed her to kind of take on her own dynamic in, in, this, in the story. Um, I'm, you realise I'm being kind of quite coy about Elaine, but yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not sure if I want to say this because it's kind of almost a spoiler. Oh but, yeah, no, but, if it's a spoiler. Okay, oh. but I mean, I, I just, uh, I, won't, okay, I won't tell anyone about Elaine. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just thought with, on a perhaps related note, there is a point uh, towards the end of the book where 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 Ge- Georgie as a child says uh, you know it's, it's uh, uh, I think it's as when she's as a child uh, it's almost trans rule number one uh, never for your own sake be seen as sad bad or worst of all mad mm. so but there's almost uh, it's very obviously it's an, uh, a pressure that she feels to hold it all together and I yeah. suppose that's the other the link that that how people are processing their trauma is almost like a pressure to, to keep it all together. Yes, and I'm 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 interested in repression and suppression and how, um, at a t- you know in a in a in a in a time of stress, you know sometimes to survive, you, you find yourself doing things and then you might like I've done things and I might look back over my my life and go oh my god I can't believe I did that at that time but it made sense because it was a way to maybe deal with with stress I realize I'm being very coy and we're talking around (laughs) (laughs) but just 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 in case there's someone who (laughs) (laughs) no I'm probably actually given a few too many spoilers already but um you know it might surprise some people that it it, that it took you a decade to 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 write this book it didn't surprise me but uh, I can see what went into it but uh the does 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 did it surprise you because I think you maybe when you started out you were planning a shorter uh, book of of of, of more uh, finite scope, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. No, I thought like the second one would be like a short little, you know, knife of a thing. It would be like maybe two hundred and seventy pages max, and it would be like a very clean Aristotelian arc, and you know, beginning, middle, and end, bish bash bosh, and I'd have it done like in a year, and then I'd be like quaffing champagne at the launch. So that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> it was. Um, it was I, six years. Before you finished the first draft, is that correct? It was, I, yeah, I started in, in the winter of 2004. Like in my defense, I was doing a lot of other <laughs> stuff. So 2005, I was rewriting Hellfire. Um, and then 2006, Hellfire came out and I was quite, quite um, involved with that. But I kept kind of going back into this book and adding, basically adding. So it was growing in all sorts of directions. And then um, 2007, I kind of developed one strand on a bit. And then 2008, that was when I I realized or decided or whatever that Georgie was trans. And then everything just like I cut away the au pair story at the beginning of 2008. And then it was like, Georgie's, what if Georgie's trans? Yes. And then everything just started coming together 
Um, so it was, I had a draft at the end of 2010. So we're talking, yeah, six, six years. And then I did a year rewriting between the summer of 2012 and the summer of 2013. And then I did another rewrite in the six months um, before it was published with Dan in New Island. I mean, there's an interesting quote that pops up from time to time online from Donna Tart. I think it was from the time of her second book, because uh, she also takes a decade on a book. And she's, she said that working on something over a long period of time gives it a sense of richness that you can't fake. And I did feel that reading Beautiful Pictures, uh, that, that there, was, there was this richness of character and sort of the particular situation that these characters all find themselves in, that, that I think obviously was the product of, of you investing that t- length of time in it. Yeah, I, 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 I saw Donna Tart in an interview and I, I just loved what she said about like working slow and working long. Um, I remember seeing this brilliant video in Emma. It was Hughie O'Donoghue, whose work I just think is amazing, the painter. And he builds his, he builds his work up in layers. So he'll, you know, put newsprint, paint on that, scrape it back, put another layer, scrape it back. And there was something so amazing watching this piece of work unfold and emerge over a really long period of time. Like he had it in time lapse so you could see it fast. And I think, I think... I mean, I, when I was a kid, I, I had, when I was in first year in school, this is like probably my way of dealing with trauma because I was bullied in my first year in secondary school. But I had this ongoing story that I used to act out every day in my head and I'd be on the bike and I'd be talking to myself and sometimes acting out the characters. And that went on for about a year and a half. But I just put them into more and more situations, stayed with the characters. It was heaven. And there's something for me about the longer I stay with a character, you know, it, I go through a phase of, thinking it's great and then realizing how much I don't know and how much is terrible in it and that I don't know and I need to explore and unpack. And then I be, then something happens and it's like, you know, the world and the characters just sucker me in. And then I become obsessed and I, I just want to know more and more and more about them. Like, I mean, if the book hadn't been published last year, I'd probably have written a strand about Ashling. You know, I can just, there's, there's so much, like, it's like once I start investigating a character, they become very real to me. And then the world, what do I not know about that world? I want to know more and more and more about it. So, yeah, I think there's something about writing a long form over a long period of time that makes it very, um, it feels very knitted somehow on a very deep level to me, if that makes sense. And in terms of the day-to-day process of writing, has that changed for you between uh, your debut, Hellfire, and, and this, this novel? Did it change? Um, I think, like, I, I, I write in different phases. So I think to start off, I, I just, I'm terrified I won't have anything. So I, I write a lot and I write fast and I write longhand and I just kind of, almost like listening to a voice in my head, just get it down. And then... Um, and at that point, I still think it's going to be wonderful. And then I, when I start developing it and rewriting it and typing it up, then I slow down and I, I do a lot of work on paper, kind of notes and diagrams and giving out to myself a lot as well. Ah, this is so bad. This is so bad. And then I find that I'm, I'm into the final stage. So I don't necessarily have a daily routine for the entire working of a book, but there are stages when I will write, when I'll work on it, like 
maybe 16 hours. So like, especially coming up to the end where I know I've got to draw a line under it. It's going out into the world. I'll just be, and I'll get hung up on really fine detail at that point. And then, but when I'm starting off, I try to maybe, like I find generally at the beginning and middle stages, I can't do more than three or four hours. It's just, just be rubbish. I'll end up having a really unproductive day the next day. So I kind of try, and I always try and stop where I'm thinking, oh, that could happen next. And I try and stop before I write that. So I have something to cling on to when I go in the next day. Yeah, very good, very good. I mean, I apologise in advance for asking this question, considering this book is just fresh on the bookshelves. Um, but have you a plan to write a third novel? And if so, what kind of what kind of publication date might oh, we have? Oh in God, mind? I've no, no. So, uh, so publication date, I've no idea. I, I think I learned from Hellfire. Look, just you know, be grateful for the fact that this book is has. There's such a New Ireland did such a brilliant job on it, and that it's been it's attracted such fantastic attention and such in-depth analysis and responses. Really, really grateful for that. Yes, I am planning to go back into the den and work on something, and I kind of um, that it was a uh, it was actually <laughs> that old pair book. I have a feeling I got to be talking about that old pair book when I'm ninety. Oh yes, I plan to go back to that old pair novel, <laughs> and I still won't have written it. Because but you, it's, you say you you were an old pair yourself at one point. I was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's obviously. Yeah, key part no, of totally your not based on, coming of on my experiences. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it may be that. I mean, that's that's kind of what I, I have a load of of stuff that that's kind of in the shape of a book. But it needs it just at this stage. I'm it's two years since I last worked on it, and I'm like, oh, I think that that's going to need a lot of work, and I don't know if I like the structure and da 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 da. So I'd be aiming, yeah, to go back into that in the summer, and or, or something, something, it, something else might happen. Um, but yeah, I'd be aiming to get back and start working again. Because I mean, you also write short fiction, as I say, so that yeah. could be an inspiration for longer novels. Yeah, or... yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hellfire came out of a short monologue and this was triggered, I suppose, by a short story. Um, yeah, I think I want to go back into a novel. I want to go back into that dark place with unknown people and go through all those stages. And I'm ver- I'll be very interested to see I mean, Hellfire was pretty fast to do. This was slower. And I'd be very interested just to see what it would be like um, on the next one. And I'm kind of interested to see what, I, what I'll be interested in writing about, you know, and say with this, say with this material that I already have developed, what, what will strike me as interesting to explore and what will I go, ah, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in that anymore. Okay, well, we'll leave it there on that uh, enigmatic note. Um, But thank you to everybody in this live audience here at the Irish Writers' Centre for coming along to the Irish Times podcast event. Thanks to our sound engineer, JJ Vernon, and to everybody at the Irish Writers' Centre for hosting us. But a very special thanks to the very talented Mia Gallagher. You've been listening to the Irish Times Book Club podcast in association with the Irish Writers' Centre. If you would like to attend a recording of the Book Club podcast, visit the Irish Writer Centre website on irishwritercentre.ie forward slash Irish Times Book Club. You can also follow the conversation online at hashtag ITBookClub.